Welcome to The Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be. I've been excited to get you on because I, you know, I follow you on LinkedIn, I follow you on Twitter, uh, I love your writing, and um, you've really been putting out some really cool articles during this time. Um, this COVID thing has really been, you know, from our standpoint, it's really revealing, like, not only the hearts of people, but the hearts of organizations. And you can see yep. really where, where people's, um, where their true priorities are. And it's kind of an interesting thing because a lot of organizations will talk about all these nice things and their websites look great and people first and they have the diversity and all these other things. And then you see how they actually behave and really they all, all they care about is profit. Yep. I can think of a couple of specific companies. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. So um, you wrote this article about um, COVIDiacy and I just loved how you kind of captured this thing. It was the, um, it was the sports, uh, it was the health club in Boston. Yep. Yeah. Um, are we recording now? Do you want me to talk about this? Yeah. Or? Yeah. Let's just okay. jump in. Yeah, sure. Well, um, so I, I, I was fascinated by it because it, it's almost like Boston sports club. They run 31 sports fitness centers around Boston. And I know they run more in New York and up and down the East coast, very high end. Uh, I mean, clearly their problems preceded uh, COVID-19. They were financially strapped and then COVID-19 happens. And like when you're a retail business, even that you can't exist online, really, there are gyms, you have to be physically present and everything is shut. Of course, they're going to take it right in the teeth. Um, but it just underlined for me how much COVID-19 could expose and amplify your weaknesses. And the weaknesses were financially overstretched and no thought about what are the policies that we should have in place or how could we fulfill our policies to uh, at least the best we could do. And like no company is going to ace this. No company is going to be perfect at it. The vast majority of them are going to be well-meaning, but still be pretty clunky at it. Uh, but the way that Boston Sports Club or its parent company, Town Sports International, because I know people in New York and elsewhere were raising the same issues. The way that they just closed their doors, didn't communicate, didn't have a policy in place. When they finally announced a policy, it wasn't really, it, there wasn't enough mechanism there for customers to execute on the policy and email or ask somebody for a refund. There was no way for the company to do that. It was just it was a mess that was waiting to happen. And COVID-19 happened to be the accelerant that lit everything up, but like that was a kindling waiting to burn down from the beginning. Yeah, and the interesting part to me is that those concerns that members had, I mean, it's pretty obvious that everyone's gonna be thinking about a refund in the yeah. midst of this thing where everything's shutting down and they put nothing in place to like handle it. No. Like, real time. And like it was like they were trying to be too cute by half because technically they did have a refund policy on their website. It just said you can apply in person or apply to the member services department. Well, it, neglecting to mention that we've closed all of their places and we've laid off all of our people and they don't have an address for their customer service department. So that's not a policy. That's just baloney that you put up on a website because you didn't really think you might have to live up to it someday. Um, it really was it was telling. And I know that they had a class action lawsuit already going in New York. And now there's a class action lawsuit going on in Boston. Um, when you look at their balance sheet, I wish Town Sports International the best and I hope they succeed. I am 
hard pressed to see how you can do that with the balance sheet that they have, but uh, to each their own. They did finally say about a week after my post and everybody was raising hell online, they did say that they will start to uh, refund unused fees and then they would not be charging any additional fees. They said that after they had already charged for April fees, but they, um, they clearly at long last realized the error of their ways. How much are they going to be able to repent? I don't know, but just COVIDiacy. Yeah. COVIDiacy. Yeah. Um, and it's such like a damage to the brand And it. You know, you said the word reveal uh, as you were talking about that. And I think that's what this thing is doing. It's revealing everything. It's revealing all the excess that, you know, can't really persist. It's revealing all the non-essential spend and non-essential time that we spend doing different things and the non-essential, um, you know, uh, things that we rely on. And it's also revealing all these bad bets that people make. Like you, yeah. you were talking about their balance sheet. I mean, their balance sheet is crazy looking. And there's, you know, how many people are just riding that margin and riding that bullet on their day-to-day operations where one little change in the wind is going to put them on the rocks. It's crazy. That's exactly what happened. Um, now that now that we've picked on somebody bad, I did actually want to give a shout out to a company that I think was doing really good. Uh, I loved the way that Marriott's CEO was talking to his employees about the tough times ahead. And, you know, you want to talk about how companies are trying to do right by their employees. I mean, he gave a heartfelt speech, a video speech, I think it was about eight minutes long, um, where he was talking about how difficult this was. This is the most difficult crisis Marriott has ever faced, and that includes the Depression, that includes World War II, uh, includes the financial crisis. This is worse than all of that, he said. And he uh, was tearing up, and yet, at the same time, he was laying people off because he had no choice. There was no way to keep going. And I think the human touch there would at least provide some sort of solace and comfort for a Marriott employee who is about to get laid off. Um, it seemed to me to be a much more thoughtful and humane way to try and go through a difficult time than, you know, there are other companies that are open. They're still having employees come to work. They're giving them pay raises, but they're not taking much good care of them physically with their health and they're still getting sick. So like if I had the choice between a CEO who could be really heartfelt and kind to me while he's laying me off or a CEO who's paying me while he's being a jerk, like I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the trade-off is there, but it's a stark contrast and you can see that too. Yeah, you can see that contrast and you can see again, like where people's hearts are and um, I just think this is going to be such a big separator. You know, I've been talking about this a lot. There's just going to be such a separation between organizations who kind of get it, like you're saying, and those who yep. don't get it. And our response in the midst of a crisis like this is really, uh, it really reveals our character. It doesn't really build it, I don't think. And you see this with these different organizations. And, you know, I heard about uh, one company um, I don't think it was Marriott, but um, they laid off like half of their workforce. And that same day, everybody was on LinkedIn and on social talking about what a great company it was and how, how they felt so taken care of in the midst of this thing. And I think what a lot of organizations forget is that um, everybody has a pretty good BS filter now. Yes. Um, like if you look at, the, if you look at the, the radio and TV commercials that our grandparents used, used to watch, they're obviously like laughable now. You got a doctor smoking a cigarette and, you know, yeah. 
they didn't see through that, right? So our, our authenticity radar has gotten sort of more dialed in or something. And I think people have a long memory for how people are treated and how um, organizations comport themselves in the midst of, of a crisis. And just a little bit of extra work from a, an organization to communicate authentic, authentically or transparently with their, with their employees, I think goes a long way. And I mean, we're all big boys and girls, right? I mean, we all know that this is an unprecedented thing. Spending a little yeah. bit of time being real about, man, I don't really know where we're going to go with this. I think it goes a long way for folks. I think so. And I, I, that was something that the Marriott CEO um, tried to communicate. You know, basically, he doesn't know how they're going to get out of this. Uh, he doesn't know when it's going to end. He doesn't know how many people he'll be able to hire back. But, um, you know, when you base your communication on what I think are some fairly universal moral standards and social customs, people can see that and relate to it. And I just, I look at, you know, some of the grocery chains, some of the big fulfillment centers that are paying more money, they're hiring more people, but they don't really care that much about you. Or when you do try to speak up about um, unsafe conditions, you get fired or reprimanded. Uh, that, does, that does not go over well. That jars against what most people prefer in their own personal lives and how they would conduct themselves. And so, yeah, people are going to say that company stinks. Um, I won't necessarily name any names here, but I think we can all imagine you know, they deliver stuff to your house probably just about every week. Put it yeah. And so that one is an interesting one because is that beyond the point of like them having to care, right? Like there is like, are, is what we're talking about sort of a luxury of choice? And is it to an extent where it's like, okay, well, yeah, they're jerks, but what else am I going to do? I need to get this thing delivered to my house. Like, you, do you know what I'm saying? Like, are we at this, this tipping point of a of a change where there's so much power shifted to an organization like that to where they don't have to be like a good citizen anymore. It's a fair point uh, because, you know, I'll take Instacart, for example. So I, I do not support the idea of Instacart. And when I and my family, when we need food, I go to the supermarket. Is it going to expose me to the virus? Yeah, probably. But uh, just because I am lucky enough to be fairly successful even now that doesn't really give me the right just to outsource my virus risks to somebody else who needs the money you know, like this is my job my responsibility i'm not going to you know farm that out but that's easy to say when you just need food because the supermarkets are around but if i wanted to pick up um something else for my kids like uh, i don't know a new bike or something well all the bike shops are closed so i am going to have to order it online whether it's amazon or somebody else um so i would have some less power to be able to, I don't know, exert influence over how Amazon does things. But it's everybody makes their own decisions step by step, I guess. I like how you said that. I've never heard that really before, that outsourcing of, of my virus risk. And inherent to that is a sort of feeling of, well, we're kind of all in this together and I'm not going to sort of push this risk off to somebody else if it's mine, if it's my sort of burden to bear. Yeah, you know, I... I mean, as nice as we want to say we're all in this together, there was that great clip from a BBC news anchor who basically pointed out, no, we're not all in this together. Some people are really in this and they're stuck in it because they need a job and they have to work at some hourly wage and they're doing it in a supermarket or a fulfillment center or on a bus or something like that where their risk is much higher. And there are many other people who have white collar jobs who can most of the time 
uh, stay at home. And there are certainly some very upper class people who can outsource their exposure to other people entirely, and uh, they don't have to do it. It's impolitic to point it out, but no, there's certainly a socioeconomic class is a big factor in how much you are or are not in this. And, you know, some of us are in this a whole lot more than the others. <laughs> yeah, it's this weird separation where the people who are kind of screaming, again, this is maybe a stereotype or broad brushstroke, but that's, I guess, all I paint with. Um, the people who are screaming, hey, we're all in this together, and they're, you know, or like, I think the celebrities is a perfect picture of it. They're, they're doing a, um, you know, a chorus of imagine and so forth, and they're trapped in their, uh, their mansions. And then you got the guy who's earning eight bucks an hour, who's still at the grocery store, touching everyone's groceries, coming in contact with thousands of people a day, to your point. He's in, yeah. he's, he's in the foxhole, this guy. The other guy is just, you know, growing his victory garden or something. Uh, essentially, yeah. Now, look, it, certainly I appreciate some of the celebrities who are trying to show people what COVID looks like if they've had it. Um, and they're trying to give people some other solace and entertainment, which is nice if you're locked in your house with your kids all the time. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, there's definitely, there is a undercurrent of people who are less fortunate and they are more exposed to this virus in their daily lives. And we do need to think about their, their roles. I mean, a lot of hourly work wage earners are really, they're essential workers these days. They're just as important as an ambulance driver or a doctor because if they're not working in the supermarkets or delivering goods, I'm not getting food. So they are essential workers. Um, I have seen, this is in Massachusetts, I'm not sure if it's elsewhere, that several supermarkets were clamoring for their employees to be as essential workers as a classification. So they would get more priority testing or more priority access to COVID testing. And the state is going along with that. And I do think that's a good idea. It's those kind of gestures that do matter and do make sure that we are a little bit more in this than together than we otherwise would be. As much as I'd like my own COVID-19 test, it's more important that somebody working in the supermarket gets it ahead of me. So yeah, that's I a, like the idea that we're trying to do that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And that's sort of, um, I mean, you see some organizations trying to argue that their employees are essential, a company like GameStop. Um, and that's seriously, or that seems to be clearly kind of profit driven. And it's nice to see folks trying to do it for, to try to compensate for some of that health exposure that their people who are on the front lines are actually living with on a day-to-day -day basis? You know, it, uh, I would have to go case by case on what the motivations are for some companies. Uh, some of them, for example, are trying to uh, repurpose their manufacturing so they are making more personal protection equipment. That's nice, but there are at least some unscrupulous players out there who are doing that because once they make PPE, they can stay open and they can keep all their other product lines open and keep everybody else at work because only 10% are working on PPE, but that's all you need to be able to keep the doors open and have the employees show up. That's kind of seedy. I don't know how widespread that is, but I know it has happened. And, you know, like I said, you, you have to case by case, see exactly what each company is doing and why to, to make these kind of calls. But I mean, that kind of brings folks in our neck of the woods um, to a, an interesting position in the broader context of this conversation in the sense of all the moral hazard that's really popping up right now. Anytime yeah. there's a crisis, there's all this new opportunity for uh, moral hazard. And the way we see people 
react to it is, is, is interesting. What sort of things are you seeing at your clients who are trying to sort of um, double clutch right now? And what sort of like massive risk pockets are you seeing that, that policies or whatever you're helping them with um, are helping to sort of buttress against? I think, um, I think a lot of people are struggling with policies that will need to be in places we try to turn the economy back on, whenever that is. And I, I've been harping on that for a while, that um, you know, we need to think about how do we implement public health controls, policies, and procedures at the private enterprise, which typically we have not done. And in theory land, you would come up with a set of policies and procedures for how to handle pandemics at the global level when people can't travel anywhere and they're working from home. But you'd also need to have, and this is interesting, this got a lot of attention, was infectious disease control specifically that almost nobody six months ago would really have thought this is a big risk we need to worry about and have a plan. But it's really about how do you make sure that you know which employees are sick? What do you do with people who are sick? How do you help them to make sure that they get better? Or how do you make sure that people are not coming to work sick? Or you know, how do you control disease on your, in your office, in your manufacturing plant? But you should have those plans and you should tie them to bigger public health requirements that are coming out at the global or national or state or local level. Like this is going to be complex to do. Um, but, you know, frankly, we missed all of that boat with COVID-19. We're already, you know, the, the disease is out and we're already at level four, which I think is just about as severe as you can get for the World Health Organization. Um, but, in, you know, if we're going to start tuning down public health controls and allowing more freedom, how is that going to translate into prudent business practices so you don't contribute to reinfections or uh, re-outbreaks or something like that? And I don't think a lot of people know that yet. Um, I mean, they, they know that this is a bridge we have to cross, but I don't think they know how to cross it. The other thing that I think is really difficult is business continuity, not in the sense that our specific business can continue because we have our policies and we set up our VPN and we have everybody working from home with the laptops and it's all great. Well, if your customers are not able to buy or your supply chain is not able to deliver your goods, your business continuity plan of one doesn't count for squat. Um, nobody's going to care that you are ready if either end of the supply chain is not in position with you. So how are you assessing the continuity of your supply chain? Not necessarily even of your suppliers, but your supply chain generally. If these suppliers can't give us our goods, where would we find them elsewhere? Um, and how is the continuity of your customers? If they can't come to our stores, do we have a strong online retail presence? Or if they are not able to pay their bills right now, do we want to extend some sort of um, customer financing program for six months and they'll make it back later on? Do we know whether that's wise? How does that affect our liquidity? A lot of risk scenarios like that that people haven't had to anticipate and now we suddenly have to anticipate them all at once. Um, so it's at the specific company level, it's about infectious disease control. At the bigger macroeconomic level, it's how do I, or that my whole business ecosystem is continuing so that I can keep participating in it too. 
that's where companies are struggling. And you touched on this in one of your recent articles that there's this sort of tension point between efficiency and resiliency. And that's really what we're talking about here. And historically, right, a company um, and those in charge who are deploying the, the asset set or the resources that that company has to employ to generate profits are trying to generate as much of a surplus as they can because then they get rewarded individually with bigger salaries or bigger stock option values. Um, investors are looking for that because they want that, those stock prices to go up. But in doing that, it creates sort of a disincentive to, to your point, build in some of that resiliency or that anti-fragility, which are really just a bunch of sort of insurance policies and in various different aspects of the supply chain or, or in the operation. Do you think, or how do you think investors who I think are really going to be the winds that steer these ships um, will start to place a higher premium on those resiliency um, activities within an organization? Well, that's an excellent question because I'm not sure the investors know. And it is a fair point to raise that um, we might not want to go too far down this road because it is at least possible that we might come up with a miracle vaccine for COVID in six months. So are you really going to invest in all of this resiliency for something that will go away six months from now? Right. Um, you know, it's the, the food business is, they, they were the ones that made you start thinking about this, but they're in a difficult situation that sure, they could rip up all of their processes to serve restaurants and double down on customers because there are no restaurants that are taking food now and customer demand is through the roof. But that could change in six months. And then what are you going to do? Because now you can't serve restaurants and you just ripped up every, your whole playbook to walk away from that customer base. Right. So on the other hand, if I said that we're not going to have a normal economy and a vaccine for two years, yeah, it would be worth ripping up a lot of the restaurants. You know, unfortunately for restaurants, they might not be back. So what is the point in serving them? And we don't know the answer to that question. And we don't know what the value of resiliency is because it's a nice buzzword, but it really means slack in the system. It means extra, it means flexibility. Um, we engineers would say what we have right now is a very tightly coupled supply chain where if any one particular link snaps, the whole chain snaps. Uh, what we need is more of a loosely coupled system that would look more like a maybe a mesh where, you know, if any particular part of the mesh breaks, that kind of stinks right around the hole, but the rest of the thing is fine. Um, we don't have that. We don't have an economic system that rewards that. And if we knew that COVID would be a fact of life for 10 years, then we would figure out a way to do it. But um, we don't know how long it's going to last. And you don't necessarily want to shift from tightly to loosely coupled if it is going to go away in three or four months. I, I don't know what the answer is. I just know it's a really tough problem that a lot of companies are they're, they're trapped in business models that aren't going to allow them to find an escape hatch. Yeah. And, you know, that coupling is an inch is an interesting word. It's really this thing is really showing like the extent to which everyone is so interdependent. You know, yeah. um, I was looking at this uh, hand sanitizer bottle on my desk and there's probably 50 companies that are going into that thing, getting from not existing to existing on my desk, right? Yeah. There's a company that makes the label. There's a company that gets the different 
uh, ink for the label. There's a company that slits the label. There's a company that there's five different components that go just into the nozzle. And as we, as a, as a sort of broad economy have sort of, um, disintegrated and got more focused on specialization of these individual pieces and the, the factors of production being spread now across more and more organizations, it becomes a much more fragile thing. You're trading off this, this fragility, uh, for efficiency, right? Or you're those, those rise together, right? Um, it'll just be interesting. And I mean, part of the intellectual problem here is the lack of ability to see through the fog that we're in. We don't know how close to the shore we are. Again, is it six months until there's a vaccine and everything's back, back to normal? Is it two months? And what sort of moral hazard do we have at a government level where you have individual governments who want to open up economies maybe before it's time to? And where does that leave the organizations who have to sort of deal with the, with the contagion fallout uh, with respect to policies that they're working on and trying to put in place, you know? Yeah, you know, I, that is actually that last part there. I've been thinking about that lately, too, that clearly the Trump administration wants COVID to either go away or pretend it doesn't exist. And they want to reopen the economy right now. Uh, in the real world, there are various states that are led by governors who will think that's fine. And various other sharper governors will say, no, that's not fine. Or we're not going to do that. Um, but I could easily see a scenario where there's a patchwork of some parts of the country are trying to reopen some parts are either by region or by industry or something like that. A lot of people, frankly, aren't going to do it no matter what the government says, because the testing is not there yet for me to feel comfortable to walk around in society. So how would a large business that straddles multiple jurisdictions like that, how are they going to navigate this? Right. Um, this is, I think that the reopening of the economy will eventually become politicized because this is America and everything we do now is politicized. And then a company is going to be in a really difficult position where they've got different political factions fighting and they're caught in the crossfire. This is not where any company wants to be, but you know, they're going to be stuck there. That um, you know, they all might have employees who don't want to go in to work because the state governor says that we shouldn't, but here's Donald Trump saying it should be perfectly fine. And there are other plants or competitors who are trying to go in. This is going to be a mess. And what we really need is consistency and agreement and consensus. And we don't have it. I don't know when we are going to have it. But the few institutions that do straddle all of this are large businesses. And they're, they're going to be in a difficult spot as we try and reopen. I would bet my mortgage payment on that. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Just, you know, to your point, imagine some, some, somebody who's got production in Tennessee and has got production in California who those states have totally different reactions to this thing. Yes. And the output from Tennessee is required for the output of, you know, whatever they're producing in California. Yeah. That's a, that's a brutal spot to be in. Yeah. And you know, we may just be at the tip of the iceberg for the mess that this is going to be. I mean, we just don't even know. We might be, it might be almost over. It might be just starting. We just have no idea how long unemployment or how high unemployment is going to get, how long this disruption is going to take, what the impact of the economy is. And everyone's just kind of, you know, they, we've moved from this long-term view or whatever a quote unquote long-term view is to just this compressed view of, man, I just got to get through the next day or the next week or, or whatever. It's a really interesting time. I would always say that what we really have is in my observation, there are plenty of people who are going to disagree with me, 
but we have a public health crisis that is causing an economic crisis that will then cause various business liquidity financial crises for various industries. You are not going to solve those last two things until you tame the fundamental problem, which is the public health crisis. It's like doing a root cause analysis and you decide you're not going to treat the root cause, you're just going to treat some of the consequences of it. Um, but like I said, there are people who are going to disagree with me because there are people in the country who don't think COVID is that big of a deal and that the, we have magnified it and therefore it is magnifying an economic crisis that doesn't really need to be as bad as it is. That's what they say. I disagree with them. But one of the people I think who believes this is the president and various parts of his uh, supporters and his political base who don't necessarily believe this is a public health crisis. And when I don't know who is or isn't right there. I like to think I'm right. But um, the fact is, we're going to have dis debates and dissent over is this a public health crisis or not. And as soon as you do, you wind up with different interpretations of what's the economic crisis and how do we get out of it. And if you're a big business trying to serve everybody across those warring fiefdoms, that's going to be a headache. And I don't have a good answer for people, but I do not doubt that that sort of difficulty and tension is coming soon. Yeah, and I guess if there is a disagreement or debate around what the fundamental problem is, then the medicine pr prescribed is going to be aimed at one thing or the other. And if one is not, not the primary cause, you know, if we're putting out all these prescriptions to fix the economic crisis and we're not actually fi fixing the public health crisis, to your point, what is that even doing? It's a very apt metaphor. But yeah, exactly. We, we have differing opinions on what the fundamental illness here actually is. And if we do, then what the treatment is, is also going to differ and cause tension. And that's where we are. So you talked a little bit about, um, so, you know, part of this whole, the whole thesis of this podcast, the ethics experts is about how we can help ethics and compliance folks elevate. And a lot of the folks, as I'm sure you have seen throughout your career are in, um, you know, what I would call sort of uh, organizations where there's a cost center mentality attached to these positions. Sometimes yeah. these are the guys whose budgets get cut first. And in my mind, and from what I've seen, while the influence might not be totally direct, like, hey, I spin up a website that's going to generate a bunch of cash. I've seen in my own career, both from a direct and an indirect uh, perspective, organizations that have a strong ethics and compliance function, they have all that goodness that generates those things, those bottom line expansions, those margin expansions, those higher uh, levels of profitability, those better cultures, those better behaviors that those profit minded analytical types at the top who don't understand, in my mind, um, the potential of these functions are actually going after. Yeah. I've seen over the last couple of weeks, as this thing has really taken hold, I've seen a lot of folks in these positions, ethics and compliance or HR, have to step up and really show their worth. And I'd love for you to kind of weigh in on, you know, what would you tell folks to do to elevate right now? What sort of opportunities do you see for um, people in our industry to really break out of this glass box that they've been placed in? Well, I think a lot of it is about reframing what ethics and compliance functions do, not so much about achieving regulatory compliance, but nurturing cultures that are more responsive to risk generally. 
Um, regulatory compliance is one of those risks, but it certainly is not the only one. You know, COVID-19 is not a regulated risk. It's just the biggest risk any of us have ever seen. Um, it's more about how to build a organizational culture where people really do support the business. They want to help the business succeed, which generally is the case when you look at employee surveys. Um, you know, I, I remember Ethosphere, they put out a survey last summer where they asked the question, why do employees want to speak up? 84% said because it's the right thing to do. 60 some odd percent said because we want to see the company succeed. Great numbers. That shows the raw material is there because the raw material is employees with, whose heart is in the right place, which is on the side of the company. Um, but then why don't they actually uh, speak up? Because we're afraid we'll have retaliation because we're afraid the company won't take any action even when we do speak. Even if they don't retaliate, they're just not going to care. And so a lot of it is about getting those obstacles knocked down so you have employees who are more willing to help the company succeed. Now, look, we've all had coworkers, I'm sure I've had them, where you see them working and they're working, they do a fair job, but they're there for the paycheck and they really couldn't care less about anything that doesn't affect their paycheck. And they don't want to go the extra mile. They don't want to go the extra inch. Somebody else gets paid to go that inch, not me. And they don't care if the company really succeeds. That's terrible. We've seen that before. A good ethics and compliance program encourages a speak up culture. And once you have that, a whole lot of other benefits come. Because if people are willing to speak up about bad things that are going on, you know, I never said that bad was actual misconduct. I think it's just if they see a product that isn't working as well as it could, they hear a rumor about a competitor that is about to make a bid for us or is about to go under and we should grab them. Or I do see some misconduct that might bite us in the rear end six months from now. Maybe we should think about it. Like you want, it is about getting them to want the company to succeed. And once they're speaking and once you have a strong ability to respond to them, you are responding to changing conditions in the work field, in the workspace, in the business environment. And Last I saw, looking out the window today, we are in the most uncertain, volatile business environment I have ever encountered. And I sincerely hope I never encounter an environment like this again. But we are where we are. We have no idea what the future is going to bring. One of the best early warning systems is your employees telling you, this might be something kind of weird. Somebody should look into it. That's what the ethics and compliance function should be trying to achieve. I, I have no illusions. You're right. It's a cost center. There are probably going to be budget cuts. Compliance and our friends and inter internal audit down the hall, we would be doing a disservice if we didn't at least float the idea that, okay, if I had to cut my budget by 10%, what do I cut? I don't think many senior executives are going to say, cut the compliance program, cut the internal audit program. They're going to say, trim the scope of what you want to do or try and rethink how you can do this so you can do more with less. I hate that phrase too, but nonetheless, like that is going to happen. I don't think they're going to gut these functions, but I do think it's, it's incumbent upon compliance officers and it's an opportunity for them to argue that compliance is part of something that is much bigger about risk management generally. And if we get that down, well at an organization, 
you're going to be able to survive and roll with all the punches that are coming. And there's a lot of punches that are coming right now. Great answer. Um, how did you get into this game? How did you, when you were, this is our spirit week. So today is the day everyone's got to dress up for what they want to be. And so yeah. I wanted to be a baseball player or something when I was little. How did you get into this game? how did you get into the, uh, the compliance game? Uh, somebody paid me to, and that's pretty much it. No. So what happened was uh, I had been a newspaper reporter for a long time in the 90s. And then I drifted into writing specifically around business and writing about technology, uh, writing about things like capital formation and new companies. And then by 2003, when the Sarbanes-Oxley Act had been passed, the founders of Compliance Week, I met them through an acquaintance and they said, we need somebody who can write about this. Can you write about corporate compliance? It's like, well, if, can your checks clear the bank? And they said, yeah, so, yeah, sure. I can write about compliance. What could go wrong? Uh, and that was in 2003. I always say I was very fortunate because I didn't really know that much about corporate compliance at that time. But most of the people who were in the field really didn't know much about it either. And I consider it a great privilege and stroke of luck that I got to sort of grow up with this field um, as it went from just good corporate accounting to anti-corruption issues to data privacy issues to much more sophisticated risk management. Um, you know, wound up, didn't expect to stay at Compliance Week for 13 years, but I did. And then I've been running radical compliance for four and a half now. I mean, I, I always say this stuff is endlessly fascinating to me because it is a mix of organizational behavior, public policy, um, ethics and morality, technology. It is this mishmash of issues that you have to stuff together to try to make a large group of people roughly behave in this sort of direction and this sort of way and all together and everybody try and move in the same direction. And, you know, there are four people in my house. I'm lucky that we can get all four of us to do something at any given time. I can't imagine how difficult it is to run a global company. The problems that they face to get everybody to work together well are endlessly fascinating. So I, I just think it's a great field. It's a great privilege to be able to write about it and hear what's going on. Well, I can, it comes out in your writing that you are fascinated by it and you make some, you make this topic that I think a lot of people who aren't in this, I find it fascinating, but I can nerd out on this stuff all day. I think you, you make it fascinating even to people who maybe don't get it and don't get all, all that mishmash and nuance of what a sort of difficult task uh, the people in this function have to sort of herd all these cats, you know, up yeah. this mountain toward the top. It's, it's, it's a really interesting, uh, it's a, it's a really interesting way you put that. It, it absolutely is like herding cats or um, always the most popular posts that I have are when I pick out some sort of challenge about raising small children since I have two and how it is so similar to the <laughs> compliance and policy issues that large companies do have. Um, so if, whether it's herding cats or getting five-year-olds to listen to you and do what you want, you can pick your own metaphor, but um, it's the sort of thing that never will have any final triumph where we suddenly can run ethical corporations that are risk-free for the rest of eternity. That's never going to happen. There's always going to be something new. Yeah. And because, you know, because there's new risks that keep coming, COVID's a great example of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So 10 years from now, 
I mean, you've, you've been in this game for, for a while, 15 years, 13 years, something like that. 10 years, you've seen a ton of change, right? You've seen it go from this, hey, we just have to have good, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley, good accounting and stuff like that, to now expand to all these other, this multifaceted shape. 10 years from now, what do you think the state of our world will be? Not obviously the whole world. I'm talking about the compliance world in terms of how these functions are viewed within organizations, whether they have a seat at the table, things like that. I have thought for a long time that risk management and corporate compliance would converge and you know, they would overlap, uh, they would fuse. There's all sorts of words you could use about how this would evolve because good corporate conduct, good ethical conduct is really becoming so much more instrumental to achieving regulatory compliance. Um, and if you are in regulatory compliance and you do have good conduct, that makes risk management generally much easier to do because everybody's on the same team about being aware of what risks are. And you know, so would corporate compliance be a subsidiary of risk management at banks? It already is, you know, the compliance officer answers to the risk officer. Um, would it fuse maybe with internal audit because internal audit functions assess risks, they find weak spots, they analyze data, they build devices and algorithms to monitor risk all the time so you can keep the risk in a fixed zone. Um, last time I checked, if you could do that all the time, that's pretty much what regulatory compliance is trying to do anyways. So I could see a whole lot of these functions blending together into one souped up sort of risk management function. And for a long time, I thought that would happen by say 2030. I am suddenly wondering if the challenges of COVID are going to make it so that that long thing that I thought would happen by 2030 is gonna happen by like October. Um, because it is so challenging and there are so many businesses that you know, in one way or another, they are just unprepared um, and not necessarily through any fault of their own. Some of them through their own fault. Boston Sports Club, half an hour ago when we talked about them, this was their fault that they got caught flat-footed by a risk event. But for a lot of companies, it's just, it's nothing like they'd ever thought of before. And they are suddenly having to think about how do we manage not just this risk, but this risk is going to be so fluid and far reaching for so long that we need to soup up our ability to manage it. Um, one compliance officer I know, he phrased it greatly. We were talking about business continuity plans. He says, look, my business continuity plan is worthless because it never encompassed this. What is worth it is not my plan, but my ability to plan with others in the enterprise. Once we suddenly realize we have to plan for this that just blew up in our face right here. And I thought that was a really good insight. I've bounced it off of other audit executives and audit directors and corporate compliance officers. And they all uniformly agree. It's not so much that you have the plan. It is that you know how to plan when you need to suddenly plan right now for something nobody thought of before. And that's what risk management capability is. It's not having good systems. It's about having good capability, having the right sort of structure and emotional or not emotional, but interpersonal skills and, and collaboration buy-in to be able to try and solve these problems. That's um, I hadn't looked at it that way. 
that it's not about having the plan, it's about the ability to plan. I, I mean, one that. audit committee director, she would dec she declined to identify herself publicly, but she said flat out, business continuity plans, which she has drawn up many times, like they're never worth crap because every time I actually need one, all it does is show me all the things I didn't actually plan for, for the crisis I actually have. She yeah. said, you know, that she likes having the ability to plan. She wholly agreed with my compliance officer person. And that's what keeps a business continuing. It's your ability to plan with other people on the fly. Um, in World War I, this was like the clash of the old world and the new world. And you would have some of these guys coming out to a battle and they would be, you know, all decked out and they'd be riding their horses. The, the romance of going to war and they'd come up over the hill and they would be met with tanks. Yes. And that's what a lot of this feels like, right? It's not about, yeah. they had a great war plan to have the cavalry go this way and so forth. But then when you're met with a tank, that doesn't really work anymore. You got to be able to make that move immediately. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of sense in that, but it does get to the idea that success in this world, success in risk management is really about involving, involving multiple people uh, who are working as a, in a collaborative way as a team that is, Everybody's going to have their own responsibility, but they're still focused on one or two big goals and they know that they should be all moving in this direction. And that's really what corporate culture and is all about, is about fostering that sort of a sense. I think framing it that way, where it's about the ability to plan, it's about the ability to be, dyna to be dynamic and to respond to this sort of undulating floor that we're all trying, trying to walk across and understand that like our weapons of war, so to speak, are really tools of collaboration and are built on our ability to be to exercise those interpersonal interactions changes our role as risk mitigators or as risk professionals to something that extends beyond putting a bunch of words and policies on a page and sending those around in emails for people to sign and acknowledge receipt it adds a dimensionality to it that sort of takes it off off the screen and to your point ties it down to the culture of trying to change behaviors and that's really what this is about it is, yeah. And you know, when you put it that way about it's real people trying to change behaviors so that we can all focus on what matters, there isn't a CEO in the world who would disagree that with that sentiment. Every single one of them would say that's exactly what we need to do. And that is exactly what corporate compliance can do. And you know, you would ask before about how would I recommend people make the argument that compliance programs matter right now. That's how they matter. Um, and we should definitely be making that argument. And I think most CEOs would be open to that persuasion. So how can people find you? How can, uh, how, how, how can they find you uh, in more of your uh, compliance memes? Well, uh, they can always go to my website, radicalcompliance.com. And I post stuff there randomly, but you know, with luck, four or five times a week, sometimes not as much, but everything I do post, I also stick up on LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, and I do have a newsletter that comes out every Friday afternoon. So if you go to my website, you can sign up for the newsletter and then it'll just be a digest of everything I had posted or published over the prior week. Um, but like I said, I love talking about this stuff. So anytime somebody wants to call me up and tell me what I'm missing, where I'm right, where I'm wrong, or some other issue that they think deserves attention. I'm always eager to hear from people about that. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for coming on the Ethics Experts today. This was really a, really a fun conversation. Um, appreciate you, hope you have a great day. All right, thank you.